The Guardian. Hello, this is a business podcast. I'm Aditya Chakravorty. This week... Silver bells, silver bells, it's Christmas time in the city. Yes, it's Christmas time in the city. And on the way, whopping great bonuses for one and all. On every street corner, as Bing Crosby might have it, people are smiling and laughing. However... The old crooner forgot to mention that they were particularly smiling and laughing if they worked at Goldman Sachs and had just pulled in a million quid extra. Joining the festive cheer as we focus on city bonuses and executive pay, we've got former trader, Seth Friedman, who's written an insider's account of the city, Binge Trading. He joins us down the line from Jerusalem. From Manchester, we've got Steve Davis of the free market think tank, the Institute of Economic Affairs. And batting for the home team, we've got Jill Trainer, the Guardian's resident banking expert, and our former colleague, now Chief Scrooge at Compass's High Pay Commission, the one and only Deborah Hargreaves. Welcome to you all. So what follows a global financial crisis? Well, big bonuses for bankers. Or so one would believe from reading the papers. It's estimated that £7 billion will be paid out in the city this year in one-off payments. To get us started, we asked the director of the British Bankers Association, Irving Henry, why banks prefer bonuses over basic salaries. Having bonuses or what we often call variable pay gives their cost base some sort of flexibility. And so what happens is because you've got a cost base which is fixed and then depending on how sales are performed, business has been built up and often bonuses aren't just paid because of how much profit you generated but what additional value you have made for the firm. Plus, it's a means of encouraging firms to perform that little bit extra. And it's quite useful as well for long-term planning to, to kind of sort out who your good staff are from your average ones. So it's got a good uh, HR element to it because you can then start, you know, developing your staff, seeing who the good performers, who can be stretched, who will be your future leaders, that sort of thing. Sometimes, for example, say a a firm, and it need not be a financial institution, is perhaps either rolling out a new business line or is uh, developing a new market, perhaps an overseas market. So it needs all its staff to be able to build up the infrastructure, make the client contact, boost, uh, build up the brand and so forth. And often these are awarded with bonuses and, you know, perhaps the sales which you would think would drive bonuses have not been generated yet you are just you know building up your profile building up your market share slowly but surely rightly or wrongly this uh the, where these big bonuses are paid that's the the, the, the staff who get these kind of pay uh, are highly mobile and the industry at their end is very competitive so until we see some kind of global alignment we are quite you know, we will see some lack of competitiveness in our firms. Irving Henry there of the British Bankers Association speaking to our top producer, Phil Maynard. Seth, bonus season in the city. Tell me what that looks like. I mean, there's a sense of excitement, but it's more controlled excitement because most traders know how much they're going to earn based on the last 12 months. And because there are no real secrets in the city, they've already started boasting to people in the run-up to bonus season. So it's more a confirmation of how much they've earned and how well they've done compared to their peers than, than any real surprises in that sense. How much showing off is there and how much open jealousy is there around bonus time? 
There's a huge amount of showing off, but that showing off lasts all year, actually, because that's the only way that people sort of get that ego boost and make themselves feel superior to those they're around, because that's the only way that they're... uh, that they value themselves against one another. And the jealousy incentivizes people on the one hand, but also it makes enemies because people want to outdo one another. And there's certainly no real fraternity, especially when it comes to hard cash at the end of the year. And so what do you see around January time? Do you see lots of people turning up, what, with new cars, new clothes? What outward signs do you get that they've got big bonuses? I mean, there's, there's a lot of ostentatious uh, displays of wealth around January time, just because it's almost, you're playing out this pantomime. People think, well, I've made the money, I need to show it off to everyone so they can feel it and they can actually see it firsthand. But then there's, that's been going on all year round as well because people constantly want to be showing off to their peers. And I don't think it really gets exacerbated around bonus time. It's almost because it's expected from everyone. They just maybe up their game a little bit, but it's it's just in, in line with the rest of the year, actually. And final question to you. How good are bonuses as a form of incentive? I mean, do the biggest bonuses really go to the best traders? When it comes to trading rather than the banking side of the business, uh, the deal-making side, I think that there is no better way to incentivize traders than to make it performance-related. If you say if you made a million pounds for the firm, we're going to give you 20% or £200,000, that would incentivize them to go on and try and make two million the next year. If you cap it, then they've got the feeling of, well, I've hit my upper level and what's the point of making any more for the firm because I won't benefit myself so I think I think there isn't any real alternative at the moment or at least not a viable one Deborah Hargreaves you might not like what Seth's describing on taste grounds but but where's the harm in that well what I would say is no other industry works in that way if someone said to me at the Guardian well you've written 10 articles this week um so now we're going to pay you 100 pounds more to write another article it it just doesn't work like that I can't understand why it has to be like that and just another question is 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 it just about money or is could there be a way that these traders compare themselves with each other in different ways I mean is there another incentive is it about status or is it about role or is does it have to be a huge chunk of the money they make for for the firm let's chuck that to steve davis at the iea i mean is there is there more to to rewarding someone than than cold hard cash well there's a couple of things to say about that Uh, first is that certainly there are other ways of incentivizing people uh, than money but maybe you don't want them it's far better i should say that people are competing for money than that they're competing for power for example and the other thing, by the way, I'd like to comment on something uh, Deborah said, which is that uh, it's not the case that this is the only industry that works in this way. But there are many, many others where this pattern is exactly replicated, such as law, for example, or association football, as we've just seen recently. Um, I was desperate to ask Seth something, actually, because I've been writing about banks on and off for a little while. And his point about if you earn a million pounds, you get 20 percent one year and then the following year you're incentivized to make two million pounds and get 20 percent of that i'm just wondering doesn't that as a trader make you think well i'll just take as many risks as i can to get this money and not think about the consequences you know not think about the fact in three years time your position in some sort of strange currency i've never heard of or whatever will go wrong and the bank will lose all the money but you've walked away with your bonus i think there is a danger that traders will take on enormous amounts of risk just to make short-term profit but at the same time if the bank or the trading firm is properly run there'll be checks and balances and compliance officers who are there to stop them doing exactly that to rein them in when they seem to be taking on too much risk with the firm's capital 
And I, I think blaming the traders alone for taking risks kind of absolves everyone else, even down to shareholders and executives, about absolves them um, from responsibility for what's gone on during the crisis. And risk is definitely encouraged when the going is good. It's only when things things turn sour that people suddenly say, oh, we should have had more compliance in place. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because when the times are good, people don't tend to think about it ever going wrong. If you think of how all of us were thinking in the run-up to do you know, 2006, 2007. There definitely was that feeling. That's yeah, how, yeah. how much do you think the boards of these banks know what's going on in the trading room? Well, it, they ought to know, because that's what they're paid to do, really. Steve, let, let me just throw Jill's question back at you, though. I mean, is there any bonus that you wouldn't defend? As long as it's between two consenting adults, is there anything you wouldn't Well, defend? absolutely. I mean, that's purely a matter for the, the firm and the traders who agree between them. As far as the risk goes, it was just brought up by Jill. I mean, I agree completely with what Seth said. That's down to failure on the part of the stockholders and the senior management to keep you know, controls on them. So the guy who came up with the deal between RBS and ABN AMRO and decided that should go ahead and that sort of was a key factor in RBS going belly up, which means that the taxpayers now had to shell out a huge amount of money to bail out RBS. The bonus that would presumably be paid for him in 2007 was completely justified. Absolutely. The people who should be taking the blame, and in fact they've just come out today that this is the board of RBS, they failed in their fiduciary responsibility, which was to keep an eye on that kind of thing and prevent deals going through if they think they were a bad deal for the company and its shareholders. The problem isn't to do with the bonuses, it's to do with structural weaknesses in the way the financial sector is organised and the policy of governments and central banks, in my opinion. Deborah, it's a good thing this is uh, audio only because your face is a picture. Go on. (laughs) Well, I would just like to pick up on that point about the risk being between the bank and the trader, because actually it's not. When the risk goes wrong, it's the rest of us that pick up the bill. Well, indeed. So, so there, therefore, it, isn't, it is of concern to the rest of us how much risk is being taken in that bank. Well, that's what I meant by structural faults, actually. I mean, there's two big problems. One of them is we have no mechanism in place for the orderly winding up of distressed financial institutions, which is why, because of the supposed systemic risk, that the rest of us end up picking up the tab, which is clearly you know, a highly problematic, to put it mildly. And, and the, other, the other problem is also that the banks believed, rightly as it turns out, that they'd be bailed out by the government. Uh, and so uh, they behaved more recklessly than they otherwise would have done, at least the senior managers did. So therefore the board needs more of, an, more of a handle on what's actually going on within the bank. The board needs to take more responsibility and, and also to take more interest as to what's going on. I agree with that, yes, very much so. Jill, do you think there's a problem with big bonuses per se, or is, is there a problem with bonuses which the directors of banks and senior management don't check and say, hang on, what exactly are we paying for here? Look, my entirely personal view on this is that I do think that some of the numbers that you hear about in the city do seem really quite large to the sort of average person in the street, and particularly at a time when the rest of us... By really quite large, do you just mean obscene? Well, I, 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 I try to get other people to use such words, but... The reality is that the numbers do feel very big quite often, I think, particularly at a time. Actually, not even at a time when the rest of us are in are in distress. I think some of the numbers that you read about and write about do feel like they're big. 
you know, when they feel hard to get your head around. Is it envy? I don't even know if it's that, but the numbers do feel quite big, I think. Seth, let me ask you the same question. You you used to be in the city and then you gave it up to do something less worthwhile instead, uh, journalism. Um, yeah. So do you sometimes feel now that you're outside the, the goldfish bowl that actually the sums that people are being paid in the city are just unjustifiable, just obscene? I don't think the figures are unjustifiable when they're taken in context. If you look at the amount of money that certain people make for their firms, then I think it does justify whatever percentage they're being paid. Obviously, there's a huge discrepancy with what you call the real world and the square mile, but that's to do with the, the way society's stoked up the city and turned it into this sort of cauldron of making money and turning a quick profit for shareholders, and everyone's put all their eggs in that basket, and that's what you get as a result. The city's so large now that the figures being played with are obscene, and therefore it, it looks like it's obscene when big bonuses are handed out but in proportion I think it, it makes sense. I think Seth's point is an interesting one about the way society's behaved and that's why I think some of the remarks that Sir Philip Hampton the chairman of RBS has made on this point is that he said he said two things I think are quite interesting one of them is he said the, I'm paraphrasing obviously is that you end up as a as a bank boss ending up paying bonuses to some people who really have done great things and deserve a lot of money but then you end up also having to pay bonuses to people who probably aren't quite worth it because the whole system has ratcheted up. And this is one of the reasons why he has sort of tried to step back from it all and say, actually, the only way we're ever going to make this work is that if we are regulated and if pay is regulated, which I, I suspect you're not going to agree with, Seth or Steve, but it's quite. A, I thought it was quite interesting that his remarks are, are trying to deal with that whole Steve, point. Steve, come in it. there. I, I think that that's actually... That point is well taken in one sense, but to go back to my earlier point, you find this phenomenon in a whole range of certain kinds of activities. It's the same in association football, for example, where you give huge salaries and rewards to some players who, from the fans' point of view, are doing the business, but you also have to pay large amounts to players who the fans think are you know, not worth it, to put it mildly. That's an inevitable result of a kind of business where human capital is the major resource. Now, I think you've just got to suck it up and take it. That's the way those kind of businesses work. You might argue that the economy as a whole should not be so devoted to that kind of business, but that's a different argument. Deborah, is, are there any bonuses that you wouldn't attack? Um, well, I would also question that thing about footballers, actually, because it's not quite the same thing, is it? I mean, they're not paid a percentage of the money they make for their clubs. In fact, when you see how much money the clubs make, it's often not very much at all. And so, therefore, it's not quite the same principle. And again, if you're talking about a market here, there are lots of people trying to become footballers. And so therefore, the market is working quite efficiently. <laughs> but but what you don't see is people clamouring to be boardroom executives or people clamouring to go into some of these jobs where, where bonus, huge bonuses are being awarded. But crucially, the other point is, I always think, is that with a football club, when this comparison is used, is that if Man U goes bust, I don't think we as the British taxpayer would have to bail it out. Whereas when RBS went bust, we did have to step in. So that's why I often wonder about the comparison with footballers in that I don't think we would bail out Man U, would we? Somebody tell me, well, are we? I well, hope no. <laughs> but I, no, we, I also we let think them go it's, on a, them laugh. Yeah. it's a societal thing, though, as well, isn't it? If we're concerned about fairness, and this is a sort of government mantra at the moment, we, we have to think about the impact this sort of thing has on society and decide what sort of society we want. And when you look at the social attitude survey, which came out yesterday, you see that 78% of people say they are concerned about the growing gap between rich and poor. 
And that's something that we all should be concerned about because it creates a, a whole level of society that doesn't really have to bother with the stuff that the rest of us do, that doesn't have to use our public services and, and can sort of float o- over the top of it. And, and if we're talking about social cohesion, I think that's quite an important thing. And another point I would make is that at the moment we're seeing quite a lot of protest um, from young people, particularly uh, uh, students about the increase in student tuition fees, but also about tax evasion by big companies. And we've seen that against Topshop and against Vodafone. I think that's quite an interesting development. And it's, it means that people are starting to look at the corporate sector and look at things that they don't like there and look at the way some businesses appear to be exempt from the rules that apply to the rest of us and starting to turn their protest on them. And I wonder if that's going to be something that increases next year as the public spending cuts bite and people realise how difficult times are. And and I just wonder if, if companies who are paying big bonuses and big salaries are setting themselves up for some kind of division of this sort. All right, Deborah. So now you're chair of this fancy high pay commission at Compass. What are you going to do about it? Well, we're looking at the moment. We've only just got going. We started about a month ago. We're going to sit for a year. We're going to hopefully come up with some recommendations on bonuses, not just in banks, but obviously in boardrooms as well. And and across the board, actually, we're looking at high pay across the board. I think there are some quite quick fixes that you could do. For example, you could have elections to the board. You could have elections to the remuneration committee. You could have a worker sitting on the remuneration committee, which I think would immediately open it up to quite a lot of, uh, shine quite a strong light on what goes on there. In terms of banks, um, disclosure is still important. I know the government has backed away from this, but we need to know people who are earning more than the chief exec, um, which I know Eric Daniels and Stephen Hester were asked last week in the Treasury Select Committee, and interestingly, didn't know. I would also or like, claim not to. Or, or claim not to. I would also like to know which departments those people were in, because then you would be able to see where the risks in that bank were concentrated. And again, I think the government has backed away on taxing these bonuses the way that Alistair Darling had done. And um, your very good leader advocated on, on Saturday that we should be taxing bonuses. The bank levy has kind of, they've sort of backed off of that a bit. But I do, I do think, you know, we've had a, a massive financial crisis, which has impoverished the rest of us for, for, for longer than I think we realise, probably caused by the banks and that so far has been no retribution. I think people are kind of very concerned about that point. Steve, uh, well, Deborah, Deborah came in as some kind of left-wing firebrand into the studio and now she just seems to be proposing disclosure and transparency. You can't have any problem with those two, can you? <laughs> no, no, I don't. Actually, no, I don't have problems with them. Um, one, one point, first of all, is that it's work recently done by the Institute Director shows that the really big pay increases in the last few years have taken place in large public companies this has not happened in large private companies or medium to small size public companies. Now, what that suggests is that what we have here is a principal agent problem to the extent that there is a problem with high executive levels of executive pay and bonus payments. It's because the shareholders and the boards don't have enough control over the senior managers, essentially. And certainly things like altering the way in which remuneration committees work might address that problem. However, that's a relatively limited problem, I would say. As regards things like the level of taxation, things of that sort, there's a reason why the politicians have been reluctant to do this. is because they are aware that these kinds of high-income-generating activities are very mobile. And what they're afraid is that if they tax people too highly, they'll simply leave and go somewhere else. 
And that means that instead of getting 10 or 20% of a large amount of money, you'll be getting nil percent. Uh, and from the point of view of the exchequer, that's not a good deal. I think that's an interesting point to pick up on because there has been a lot of discussion about bankers leaving and about people going to live overseas. But I was at a conference of bankers last week and um, and surprisingly, some of them were critical of bonuses. But obviously, a lot of them were defending it. But we had this discussion about moving to Switzerland and they all said, oh, God, I don't want to go there. Some people have been over there on a fact-finding mission and, and they... <laughs> found out they don't like it at all and this this idea of how cheap it is is completely misleading because there's a really high cost of living so taxation might be nominally cheap but you still have to pay a lot to live there. I mean, Michel Barnier yesterday was before the Treasury Select Committee and one of the things he was saying there is that you know he pretty much regards these so-called threats and risks as blackmail by these firms because actually you know he says well if you earn a bit less in London so what it's still the place to live and you know is he complacent? Is he justifying the new rules that Europe are bringing in for all sorts of things, not just on bonuses, but on the way hedge funds should behave? Who knows? But that's clearly the view of the authorities, is that it is nothing more than blackmail. Steve, it's pretty unlikely to expect, you know, entire families to uproot themselves, take, pull their kids out of school and move halfway across Europe just for the sake of a marginal yeah, tax rate. Clearly, it? a lot of people aren't going to. They're going to make a decision, essentially, that they'll trade off lower income against the benefits of living in London, as, as we just heard. On the other hand, Everything in economics happens at the margin. Some people will leave, and to the extent that some people will, you will get less revenue. Also, there is the more general problem of the position of the city, which, as Seth was saying, is an enormous industry now. Now, you may argue it's become too big relative to the British economy, but as I say, that's another argument. And the point is that even if a relatively small part of that activity goes outside the UK, because the city is so large, that has significant impact on both the London economy and on the, the tax revenue that the government can expect to get. So it's not a matter of everybody having to leave. If at the margin, some people leave, that is still significant. Well, that raises a question on what governments can do to rein in bankers' bonuses. Jill, tell us what's been going on over in Dublin. It was quite dramatic last night, to be frank, on Monday evening. It was quite extraordinary. The Allied Irish Banks was due to pay €40 billion Euros of bonuses on Friday, i.e. the 17th. And these were deferred payments from 2008. The bank had been saying it felt it had to pay this money because of a court case brought by one trader who was determined to get his deferred bonus from 2008. There were 2,400 people in the same situation. AIB took legal advice and essentially was told, you're going to have to pay up. What Brian Lenehan stunned everybody with last the night was, minister. yeah, the finance, but thank you, was this idea that actually, do you know what? We're going to legislate. We're going to say you can't get your bailout money, AIB, if you pay those bonuses. And it's an extraordinary uh, development. And it's the, it's, it's the most draconian action I think any government has taken for any bailed out bank. When we bailed out our banks in the UK, we said, OK, executives, you're not going to take your bonuses. And Gordon Brown made sure that the FSA came up with a new code on pay, one of the first anywhere in the world. But he didn't say to anybody at RBS, you're not going to get your bonus this year. It's quite an amazing development, I think. I don't know if 2,400 people in Dublin are now walking down the streets protesting about their bonuses. I don't know, but it'd be interesting. Deborah, that must be music to your ears. Yeah, I think it's great, actually. I'm surprised we didn't do that with RBS because I know there was a huge amount of discussion around at the time. And we had those, um, we talked to people from RBS, didn't we, who said how acrimonious the bonus round was as people were insisting on their right to claim bonus. I don't know why the government didn't intervene, particularly now that the, the Labour government, which is out of power, Paul Miners is now talking much tougher about the banks than he did when he was in power. 
Steve, uh, a failed bank, therefore, should not be uh, handing out huge amounts of money in bonuses. You, you don't see anything wrong with that, do you? Well, it, the, there's two questions. Should they be handing out bonuses in the future? No, I don't think they should, actually. Not as long as they've been bailed out in this way. As I said before, the problem is we don't have... We're stuck with having to bail these institutions out because we haven't got an, inst- an alternative in place for winding them up, which is what should be done. On the other hand, when we're talking about bonuses that were accrued before the bailout took place, uh, I think that it's very, very dangerous to retrospectively change the law, even though you know you can understand why people might want to do that. It sets a very, very dangerous precedent, and it's going to have a very chilling effect on people's propensity to put money in that place in the future. So th- this is not a you know an easy situation, given the fact that, as you say, we have bailed out these uh, if it, you know, financial institutions have got themselves into a serious mess rather than winding them up, which is what I would rather have done, actually. Seth, you get last question. If you took the bonus culture out of the city, what would it look like? I can't really imagine uh, the city without bonuses because they're so integral to the system. The, the idea of being a prop trader for Merrill Lynch or for HSBC is all dependent on the fact that you're going to earn a bonus and that adds liquidity to the market and it certainly helps in terms of building up a whole community where traders are dealing with one another and passing on information. And I think if you pulled that brick out, everything collapses, essentially. I don't see, you certainly couldn't have a liquid market for just trading ordinary stocks and shares if there weren't traders in the middle who know that their whole uh, raison d'etre is making money for the firm and also for themselves. I don't think anyone would do it just on a straight salary basis because they'd get bored or they'd hit their levels after a certain while and just hang up their boots for the rest of the day or the month or the year. What about cars? What if they had a nice car or something? Would that work? Well, I was talking to someone who said that in Germany there was a, a bank where they um, rewarded them with BMWs. So if you were a top trader, you got um, a series... I don't know anything about cars, but you got a series... Top of the range. Series 7 BMW, and then, then you'd go down to a Series 6 and, you know, whatever. You'd go down, still get a BMW, but Until slightly less... you got a second-hand one from Until you got a Volkswagen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but they were all fiercely protective over their cars and desperately didn't want to drop down a level and that's a lot cheaper than paying bonuses isn't it i mean i think there's this sort of the implication the the idea that people go into the city for anything other than money is just fundamentally wrong no one goes there to make the world a better place or to be loyal to their firm because people know that their firms won't be loyal to them in the bad times and so everyone's just on the make and trying to make as much money while they're going as good as possible and i think when we realise that that's what the city is to these people, to people like myself at 18 going into the market just with pound signs in our eyes and, and wanting to get rich quick, then, then you realise the bonus culture is just, it has to be part of the system because it's one of the things that sucks people in in the first place to make them give up their opportunities elsewhere so that you've got the best brains turning out the most profits for their firms. Well, that's how it felt to me anyway, on the inside, so... And I mean, I, I just add to that that it's uh, much more innocent being employed making money than looking at other things like power or status in my view. Well, on that cheery note, let's wrap up. My thanks to Jill Trainer, Deborah Hargreaves, Steve Davis and Seth Frieden. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.